Aristotle. Socrates. Kant. Hume. Kierkegaard. All consumed with the same question. What makes right and wrong? How do we define what is morally good and what is morally bad? Is it subjective or objective? Internal or external? Divine or human? The biblical book of Judges is a chronicle of what happened when each individual determined right and wrong for himself. When each one did what was right in his own eyes. When morality was in the eye of the beholder. Good morning. Those of you with kids, do your kids have a favorite bedtime story? Do they ask you for the same one every night? Do you remember when you were a child, did you ask for the same bedtime story every night? I know that I did. It, I was a baseball fan growing up. I still am a huge uh, baseball fan. So if anybody ever has uh, Jay's tickets that you're looking to give away, um, which these days there's probably a lot of folks that are looking to offload those things. Um, I was a huge baseball fan growing up, and so the bedtime story that I always ask my mom and dad to tell me, it was always the World Series Game 7. It was always the bottom of the 11th. We were down by three runs, full count, bases loaded, and I was up. And, and I never struck out, ever. I always hit a home run to win the whole thing, and I was grateful for my mother telling me that bedtime story almost every single night. I actually slept with a baseball bat when I was a kid. Do you guys know that? Partially it was because I love baseball so much. Partially it was because I grew up in the United States. And that's just kind of what we, what we do. It's either that or a firearm. So um, the story that we're going to focus the bulk of our time on this morning, we're going to take a look at the stories of two judges. Uh, but the story that we're going to focus the bulk of our time on this morning would have been a, a really popular bedtime story for young Israelite boys and girls in about 1000 B.C., I mean, it really would have, and it's the story of Ehud, who sneaks a sword into the throne room of a very fat king named Eglon, and stabs him in the gut and opens up his intestines so that his feces spills out everywhere, and then he escapes. Uh, so for those of you who uh, will be putting your kids down around 7.30 or 8 o'clock tonight, make mental note, this is in Judges chapter 3, and you can read them this story and say, good night, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite um, as, as you put them to bed tonight. But, but the story itself uh, is written to kind of be funny. Uh, we, we are supposed to laugh. We are supposed to participate. It's not just something we read as kind of neutral statement of fact and there's some things in there and you just kind of read it and move on. It's supposed to be something that we interact with uh, in almost a childlike way. It's got some humor in it. It's got quite a bit of irony in it and we're supposed to interact with it in, in that type of way. And so when we get there, we are going to participate. I just want you to give, give you full, uh, a full warning here that you will be participating in this story. Story this morning. Some of you are going to have to act out Ehud. Some of you are going to have to act out Eglon. That's not true. That's not true. I'm not going to have you do that, but we are going to participate, okay? So let's remember where we've come from so far. Remember that God's people, uh, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt, and God sent a redeemer named Moses to get them out of that slavery in Egypt and transition them to this land that he had promised them. The, the reality is that the transition or the journey from Egypt 
to Canaan, the promised land, was about a two-week journey, tops. It took the nation of Israel 40 years. You know why? Because when they got to the land, they sent in 12 spies to see uh, kind of what part of the land that they would start with. And 10 of those spies actually came out and said, we shouldn't start with any part of the land. We should not attack this land at all. This is not good. They live in fortified cities. They're completely full of like giants. We should not do this at all. And two of those 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb said, look, I don't care if they have sharks with laser beams attached to their heads. Like Yahweh is on our side, so we're going in. And the nation of Israel believed those 10 spies who doubted God and aligned themselves with them rather than with Joshua and Caleb. And so what God says is, here's the deal. You are going to wander around in the wilderness until this older generation dies. Nobody over 20 is going to enter into the promised land with two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. And so we're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, which is what they did until everybody over 20 died. And then they began to transition into this land that God has promised to them. And when they transition into this land that God has promised to them, God says, I need you to drive out and force out all the peoples who are currently in that land. And the reason why is because they are pagan not just pagan but they're they worship false gods and we'll get into how ugly that is and I don't want you to kind of co-mingle with them I don't want you to be adulterated by them you are to remain holy so you need to get all those people out and unfortunately Israel did not completely obey God they kept some of those folks as indentured servants and they let some of them live in the land they begin to intermarry they begin to co-mingle and the people of Israel, their holiness really was compromised. And in fact, there's this one verse in in the book of Judges that really reflects this 400-year time of the nation of Israel kind of coming into this land that they had promised. And and it's, it's repeated four times, and it's this phrase here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. There was no one that was defining morality. Each one did what was right in his own eyes. So you personally, you do what's right in your eyes. And you, you clan, this family, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Morality was not objective but subjective. It was not divinely defined, but it was personally defined. And the nation of Israel begins to come apart at the seams as a result. And what happens is they enter into this thing called a cycle or the cycle of sin or the cycle of disobedience and the cycle goes like this they begin to serve the lord and they walk with the lord and they follow the lord and eventually israel sins and when i say they sin they don't just sin like they do something wrong but they begin to worship other gods we'll talk about those other gods here momentarily and then they become enslaved to a foreign entity Uh, by and large it's a foreign entity that god raises up in order to enslave his people to tell them, look, you're not to serve other gods. It's, it's, it's a disciplinary measure on God's part. Eventually, Israel cries out to the Lord and says, oh God, this really stinks. We don't want to be enslaved anymore. And so God raises up a judge, 
Hence the name of the book, Judges. There are 12 different judges, six long stories and six short. And then God delivers them with that judge, and then Israel begins to serve the Lord again, and the cycle starts over again. And it happens 12 times in the book of Judges over the course of 400 years. And so we reviewed last week and took a look, kind of a broad stroke picture of the book of Judges. And so today we're going to take a look at two specific judges and the stories of two specific judges. Judges that God raises up in order to deliver his people. And the first is a man named Othniel. Othniel means lion of God. If you are pregnant and looking for something to name your child, Othniel. Very strong name. Okay, Judges chapter 3 verse 7. If you have your Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, you can use your device. I believe there's Wi-Fi in here. Should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. I'd love it if you would follow along with us and read from the text in Judges chapter 3 verse 7. Now that we have this context that God's people are in this cycle, we're going to see it reflected in this first microcosm, this first story of Othniel. Here's what happens in Judges chapter 3, verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is uh, verse 7. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So look, here's the thing. The first thing that happens is Israel forgets the Lord. They just forgot what he had done for them. Forgot the Red Sea. Forgot the redemption from Egypt. They forgot all this stuff. And then they begin to serve false gods. Now, if you were just to read this and go, they served Baals and Asheroth. It's like, well, that's, you know, maybe even benign. It's like these carved images of stone and wood or whatever. And they serve the Baals and Asheroth. Is that really all that bad? Well, it is. Here's the reason why. Because the Baals and Asheroth, Baal, uh, it was kind of a general name. So there was like a Mississauga Baal and a Markham Baal and a Thornhill Baal, right? So there's this, all this is kind of general name. And then Asheroth as well. This was the male and female counterparts of the fertility god and goddesses, right? So this was a fertility cult. And so what they did in order to worship and serve Baal and Asheroth was ritual prostitution. So what these folks would do is they would enslave and, and, and take into their possession uh, young women, very young women, children, and use them as sexual slaves, and that was their worship to Baal and Asheroth. The second thing that they were doing was infant sacrifice, specifically those infants who, who, who were maybe disabled or deformed or those types of things. They would sacrifice them on the, sacrifice those infants on the altar of Baal and Asheroth. So w- w- when the Bible says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, this isn't just about worshiping a graven image or something carved of stone. This is about doing some very, very wicked stuff, not just in the eyes of the Lord, but even in the eyes of you and I. Like, if we look at this now and go like, well, that's awful. That's, that's wicked. If that was going on today, how would that make you feel? Angry would probably be a good start, right? Same thing happened with God. See, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. 
interesting here that God is still in complete control. What he does is he sends an external foreign oppressor. This man's name is Kushan Rishathaim. Again, if you're looking for a name for your child, this name actually means river of double wickedness. That's really what that means. So maybe that's not a good choice. Okay, well, back to Othniel. Othniel is better than Kushan Rishathaim. And, and so God sends in Kushan Rishathaim as a disciplinary measure, and he sells his people into the hands of Kushan Rishathaim, and they serve Kushan Rishathaim for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother. See, the people of Israel cry out, interesting here that this, in in the original language in Hebrew, this is not a crying out of true repentance, of true brokenheartedness. They're not crying out to God going, oh God, help us, oh God, we were wrong. They're just crying out in pain. This stinks. They're not really sorry for what they've done. They don't really acknowledge they're wrong. They say, oh God, this stinks, and yet God still gives them a deliverer, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And Othniel comes in as our very first judge. He's the deliverer for the nation of Israel from Cushan Rishathaim. And the spirit of the Lord was on him, that's Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim. I do like saying that name, by the way. You want to try it with me? Kushan Rishathaim, try it. Don't do that again. Way off. Um, the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishathaim. And so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Just three very short verses really dedicated to the judge, uh, the era of Othniel as a judge. Now we know a couple other things about Othniel from Judges chapter 14, or for Judges chapter 1 and from Joshua chapter 14, that he was married to Caleb's daughter and some other things. We, we know a couple other things about Othniel, but here in his reign as a judge, we're not given a lot of detail. The spirit was upon him. He delivered the people from the hand of Kushan Rishathaim. And I asked myself over and over, and I did a ton of research this week. I read everything I could possibly get my hands on, listened to so many sermons, and I asked myself this question over and over. What's so special about Othniah? What's unique about him? Why does God tell us this story? What is so special about Othniah? You want to know the answer? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing special about Othniel. What God wants us to know here is that he's in control. And he doesn't need anyone special to redeem his people. He doesn't need anyone unique to be a deliverer. He can use whoever he darn well pleases. They don't have to be a great warrior. They don't have to be this or that or the other thing. He can use whoever he wants. And he sets up in Othniel this prototypical look. This, this is what the cycle of judges will look like. The nation of Israel serves the Lord. 
And then they sin. They begin to worship the Baals and Asheroth, right? We saw that. And then God sends a foreign oppressor, foreign oppressor Kushan Rishathaim. The nation of Israel cries out to God. He sends a judge, Othniel, delivers them. And here we are serving the Lord again. And yet, we see at the uh, middle of Judges chapter 3 that again, the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And then our second judge that we meet in Judges chapter 3 is a man named Ehud. Now this one's going to be fun. This is the story of Ehud and Eglon. And this is the bedtime story that every little Israelite boy and girl would have loved to hear. It's the story of Ehud sneaking a sword into the throne room of a fat king and stabbing him in the gut. Oh my gosh, I love this story. And here's where the participation comes in. I'm going to read this story to us this morning. So if you want to just snuggle into your seat there. You want to loosen up your shoes just in case you want to get a nap because this is a fun one just to read right before we doze off, okay? And here's what I need you to do this morning. When I say the word Ehud, because he's our hero, right? He's our guy. He's our deliverer. He's our judge. I need you to cheer. Don't you scoff at me. Don't you roll your eyes. You're here in church. We're going to participate. Ready? So when I say the word Ehud, you cheer. Ready? Ehud. I don't know what to do with you people sometimes. I don't know what to do with you. We'll do it again. Ehud. That's right. And when we hear the word Eglon, because this is our, this is our nasty, fat king. In fact, the message translation says, translates, he was grossly fat. Right? This is, this is the king that we don't like. This is the oppressor. He's dumb. He's, he's not a smart man. We'll just see that here in a minute. Every time you hear the word Eglon, I want you to boo and hiss. Ready? Eglon. Some of you got a hiss too, all right? Eglon. Right, okay. So as we read this text, you are welcome to participate in any other way that's appropriate, okay? So when you hear that the trumpet sounds, you can make a trumpet noise if you want to. Whatever it is that you want to do. Because we're, remember, we're Israelite boys and girls gathered around to hear this story. In fact, there's a Bible scholar uh, that, that I respect. I was reading this week that, that wrote this. Watch. He says that the irony and humor of the situation would not have escaped early Israelite leaders. All that remained of Eglon, we'll see this here in a minute, the fattened calf, the mighty ruler of Moab, was a corpse and a pile of feces. So early Israelites, as they heard this story, the irony and humor would not have escaped them. For us, we read it and we go, ooh. But, but early Israelite listeners, of this, listeners to this story, and remember, Samuel wrote Judges, likely Samuel wrote Judges after all this, and so all of this information was passed down orally. These were stories that the nation of Israel told one another, and when they told this story, there would have been participation, and they would have laughed together and gone, oh, Eglon again, or like, hey, hood, yay, all right? That's what they would have done, and so that's what we're going to do. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel, this is after Othniel died, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon. That's the wrong guy. 
just need you to catch your breath for a minute, okay? Eglon's the bad guy. Okay, everybody with me now? Ehud, he's our hero. Ehud, you cheer. You cheer for Ehud and you boo for Eglon. If you mess it up again, I'm leaving. (laughs) And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Eglon gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him by Eglon. That's good. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, about as long as my elbow to my wrist, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. I love that verse. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people and carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols of Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting in the cool of his roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, that is Eglon, rose from his seat, and Ehud reached in with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud, last time, there we go, escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. And when they arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. He said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. This would have been a story that the nation of Israel would have loved to tell one another. About their hero, about a warrior, about someone who we'll find out momentarily was even disabled and God used to deliver Israel from the hand of a rather oppressive king. 
So we're going to go back through and pick it apart just a little bit at a time so we understand exactly what God is doing in recording this story in Judges chapter 3. So let's pick it up where we started. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon. Eglon's name is really great because it means two things. One, it means round. That's what that word means, round or rotund. The other one means bull. So he has fattened himself like a bull for slaughter, and he is about to be slaughtered. Uh, the king of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. One thing I want you to notice here is that the Lord strengthened Eglon. Did you see that? This is an evil king. This is an oppressive king that God has strengthened even though Eglon does not know it. He has become a tool in the hand of God as a disciplinary measure for God's people. He is oppressing God's people because they are worshiping false gods. They're, and he's doing so, again, because they've done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Eglon gathers to himself two groups of people, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the, the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Here they are in oppressive service under Eglon. And the reason why is that they worshiped a false god. Now, everybody make this connection. Israel worshiped a false god and wound up in slavery. Israel worshiped a false god, the Baals and the Asheroth, and wound up being oppressed and enslaved by that false god. Here's the very first thing that we can glean from the story of Ehud and Eglon, is that a false god will always enslave you. When you have in your life a false god, when you are worshiping a false god, that false god will always enslave you, entrap you. You will become beholden to that thing, that idea, that person. And here's the deal. This is very fascinating to me, is that for 3,500 years, give or take, since uh, the book of the Judges happened, or the story of Eglon and Ehud happened, we haven't shifted a ton in the type of false gods that we choose. Because back then, you know, it was Baals and Asheroth. And you're like, man, I don't have any carved images of stone in my house. Well, some of you might, or I don't have any carved images of wood in my house. Some of you might need to get rid of them. But for, for the nation of Israel, it wasn't about those carved images. It was about what those carved images represented. And because they were gods of fertility, they represented things like sex, they represented things like youth, like power, like able-bodiedness. These are the things that the nation of Israel desired to a point, so they elevated them to a point of worship. And if you look around, men and women, our culture has not changed all that much. I mean, how much anti-aging stuff is there out there? I mean, it's just crazy talk. Ted, you know who Ted Williams is? The baseball player? He had his body cryogenically frozen. He's cryogenically frozen just waiting for, for anti-aging technology to catch up so they can undead him. And he can go back and hit 400 for the Red Sox or something. I don't know what, I don't know what it is. Like, we believe that youth is the epitome. And so we force ourselves and we do all kinds of different stuff to stay young. And it's something that we 
eventually elevate to the point of worship. I come from a town called Scottsdale where there are more plastic surgeons per capita than any city in the world. And, and that, that's not just like facelift and Botox stuff. That's some weird implant type of stuff going on in Scottsdale. That's what keeps all those guys busy. Guys getting calf implants. Mine look good though, don't they? Yeah. You know, ab implant. I mean, just strange stuff in order to stay young. Or, or, or you know, women that, that, that worship the image of self so much that when they walk by a magazine rack and they see a Cosmo and they see a Shape magazine or whatever, which aren't even real women, by the way, it's all doctored and airbrushed and, you know, photoshopped and everything else. They look at that and say, I need to become that. They worship that. And that worship of that false God becomes a snare for us and it traps us. For some of you, you worship yourself. And that expression of self-worship is all the time that you spend on Instagram making yourself look good. Hashtag no filter. Even though you have a filter. Like don't tell us you don't have a filter. There's a filter on that. Like all the doctoring stuff you do and everything else in order to make yourself look good, it's self-worship. And then you become beholden to that and you're trapped by that and you have to perpetuate that image and you have to perpetuate youth or whatever it is. And we're trapped by these things and those things enslave us. I looked up the definition of slave this week. I want to share a couple of definitions with you. A slave is a person who's the legal property of another and is forced to obey them. It's like when kids who, who are the, or, or people who are the color of my kids were enslaved in, in the United States in the South just before the Civil War. Like that kind of slavery. There's that kind of slavery. Then you've got a person who works very hard without proper remuneration or appreciation. It's like the pastors here. And then uh, a slave is a person who is excessively dependent upon or controlled by something. Now we're getting a little closer, aren't we? excessively dependent upon or controlled by something. Now watch this one. This one blew my mind, and I think this one's really instructive. It's an ant. Did you guys know this? Captured in its pupil state by an ant of another species for which it becomes a worker. This actually happens. Mm. Ants. This was literally the fourth definition of slave when I looked it up this week. Ants. Come in to other ant colonies, capture the teeny tiny little ones, and bring them back to their own colony. And when they become an adult ant, they're completely subservient to that new colony. That, has what, that is what has happened with so many of us when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to money, when it comes to image. That's the reason you go to work so much. That's the reason you look at your phone first thing in the morning and last thing at night. That's the reason you're not connecting with your kids. That's the reason you're not connecting with your spouse. It's because you've worshipped a false god which leads to oppression rather than worshipping the true god which leads to freedom. That's the very first thing we learn from the story of Ehud and Eglon is that a false god will always enslave you. Let's keep going. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute to him, uh, to Eglon, the king of Moab. Interesting to me that the author makes it really clear that Ehud is left-handed. 
handed. This is going to become critical here in a minute. Sometimes we wonder, like, why in the world are there details? The details matter in Scripture. They matter. So think about them, research them, look at them. They matter. Here's why it matters. Two reasons. One, Ehud made for himself a sword. Next slide, please. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes and presented it to the tribute, uh, presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. The tribute is probably a bunch of produce, which Eglon, being a fat man, would have really loved, right? Oh, neat, bunch of produce, okay? But he bound it under his right thigh. Here's why. Because if you're a right-handed person, it's difficult to get a sword from here or from the inside of your thigh here. It's difficult. So where you bind a sword or keep a sword is on your left side so you can pull it out and wield it, right? Okay, that's where a right-hander would pull out a sword from their left leg. But since Ehud is left-handed, he takes the sword and binds it to his right leg so he can wield it easier when he gets into the throne room of Eglon. And so all of Eglon's bodyguards that are all around him, Ehud comes and says, I have a tribute. They say, great, let us frisk you real quickly. You know, you want to go through the radar and see if you beep or whatever. Make sure you don't have a weapon. So they would have frisked him and they would have frisked his left leg only because they assume he's right-handed. That's where he would have kept his sword. But instead of frisking both legs, they just frisk his left leg. They don't find his sword, which is bound to his right leg. And he's able to get the sword in and slaughter Eglon. Keep going. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I just love it. I don't know. I just put it up there because I love it. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. Keep going. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. See, this is the first stupid decision that Eglon makes. He's into information. He wants the secret message. It's it's scintillating for him. I need that. So everybody get out of here. Silence. Everybody out. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. So not only I'm a message, a secret message, I have a message from God. So Eglon stands up from his seat, thus rendering himself vulnerable. If he was seated, he wouldn't have been able to be killed by the sword, but because he's so self-interested in all the special things that Ehud is going to tell him, he stands up and renders himself vulnerable. And Ehud reached in, next slide, with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into Eglon's belly, and the hilt went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out." Here's the second thing that I really believe God wants us to know in recording this story from Judges chapter 3. Regardless if it's Kushan, Rishathaim, or Eglon, or Baals, or Asheroth, your false God will meet the same fate, corpse and feces. Whatever false God that you're worshiping, this should be humorous to us, by the way. Can we laugh on three? One, two, three. There you go. This is a humorous story, by the way. Please, everybody understand that. 
This is not just me telling you this is supposed to be funny. This is Bible scholars going, this is written in a funny way. I know that like 3,500-year-old Hebrew humor doesn't really go, you know. These days it doesn't really play well, but this is supposed to be funny. And our gods, our false gods, will be reduced to death and fecal matter. At some point, that god of money that you worship will go away and not just go away. It will be reduced to a heap of nothing. That God of sex, that God of self, that God of whatever that currently enslaves you and has entrapped you and controls you will be reduced to nothing just as Eglon was. Then Ehud went out to the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Keep going. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber, and they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Thus is the end of the story of Eglon and Ehud. I want to revisit one uh, particular point that, that we talked about. One is the, the, the point that, that Ehud is left-handed, and it enabled him to sneak a sword into the throne room of Eglon. It's not just that. In fact, this word left-handed here, it's, it's not that he, he was left-hand dominant. The implication is that his right hand did not function properly. He was unable to use his right hand. In fact, what ancient Israelites would have considered, this word here would have been considered a disability. Ehud, our second judge, our hero in Israel, was disabled. His right hand did not function. And God leveraged that disability in order to make him the hero. In fact, I love this. The fact that the, that the Canaanites were worshiping Baals and Asheroth, they were worshiping able-bodied, virile, young, all that stuff. That's what they elevated. God took what was weak in their culture and leveraged it to defeat their king. You know why? Because God delights in maximizing the weak in order to minimize the strong. God loves using what is weak in the world or what is perceived to be weak in the world those who are forgotten about, those who are ostracized, those who are shoved to the margins, those who don't get a ton of attention, those who maybe someone would say, you could never be used of God, you could never be a hero for the people of God because you are whatever that thing is, and in Ehud's case, disabled, unable to use your right hand. It's funny, Ehud was a Benjamite, and Benjamite literally means son of the right hand. And Ehud was a left-handed man only because his right hand didn't function. That's what God loves to do. Why? Because it demonstrates his glory and his power, that he's in control, that he doesn't need your help or mine. That he does what he wants to do, and we are invited into that. You and me, weak vessels, you know, spiritually debilitated, spiritually broken people come to God, and he's still able to use us and make us his hero and make us uh, deliver us and use us even to deliver others because he is so good, because he is so powerful. 
not because of our strength, but in spite of our weakness, God is still able to use. And he delights in doing so because he gets so much glory in doing it. The last thing I want to say this morning is just to encourage you, if you feel kind of entrapped by a sin, if you feel entrapped by a false god, if you feel enslaved by that besetting sin that you just kind of keep going back to each and every day, the reality is that probably started with false worship, that entrapment, that 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 thing that you're bound to. It probably started with false worship, and so the question would be, what's the solution? What what do I do? We do the same thing that the nation of Israel did, and, and, and it says that they just cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. The simple encouragement is this. When you feel trapped and enslaved is that you simply cry out to God for a deliverer, deliberately a capital D here. This is Jesus, the perfect deliverer, the one who can rescue and redeem, the one whom God used to pull us out of sin and hell and death. And even in the midst of our difficulty now, even in the midst of pain and suffering, even in the midst of being debilitated and trapped and enslaved by whatever that thing is, when we cry out to God as weak and as imperfect even as that cry might be, in the same case Israel's cry was weak and imperfect, not a cry of true repentance, but just a cry of pain. God is so gracious and so merciful and he delights in using weakness to minimize people who think they're strong. And when we cry out to God, he's so good to deliver us from those things. And that's what we learn from the second judge in the book of Judges, the story of Eglon and Ehud. And feel free to tell that to your kids before they go to bed tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us and your kindness. Thank you for the scripture that um, has been written down so that we can observe your character, so that we can learn about you. God, it just uh, even kind of strikes me now, I'm reminded even now that we read your word, that we um, understand your character and we behave differently or behave accordingly. God, when we know you're gracious, we count on your grace. When we know you're forgiving, we go to you in confession. God, when we know that you are our provider, we go to you with our requests. When we know that you're our deliverer, we go to you when we feel trapped. And so God, may we be moved today. May we be moved today to behave accordingly, to behave differently because we know of your goodness and grace and because of the story of Ehud, a deliverer. God, and ultimately, may we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. God, may we know even today that he is our ultimate deliverer. In Christ's name, God's people said.